yeah, I, I put a lot of stress on myself and, and, uh, <laughs> it goes back to being a kid where, um, uh, people now are always asking me, you know, which Alaskan writer influenced you and all this. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, we just, the last thing me and my brother wanted to read about was Alaska. <laughs> um, please don't make us read it. And then, uh, the tundra, whatever, just, we had plenty of nature and plenty of tundra. We did not want to read about that crap. Um, and then, uh, the other side of that was just that it never felt real that, uh, people writing about Alaska, it seemed like a lot of exaggerations and, um, and, uh, noble this and glamorous that. And, mm -hmm. and, um, I would say that was a, a huge percentage of, uh, why I wrote, um, at all was to want, uh, wanting it to wanting somebody to write it the way it was. That was author Seth Kantner. Seth was born and raised in Alaska among the animals and the wilderness. And his writing reflects that it draws from personal experience, often dealing with themes that involve animals, the environment and living off the land. He says that when he was a kid, his family was entirely attached to the seasons and food from the land. Both decided what they would do every day, be it hunting, fishing, picking berries, or chopping wood. Seth continues to live this way of life. In the winter, he hunts for caribou and chops wood for the fire that heats his cabin. And in the summer, he works as a commercial fisherman. Writing, he says, is what he does after he's done working for the day. Seth says that he's meticulous about his writing that keeping the messiness and the irreverence and the beauty all mixed together is important to expressing an authentic image of remote Alaska. One that shows the reality of living in harsh, inhospitable environments, not just the beauty of things like the Northern Lights and flawless wilderness. Having grown up on the land and remaining so close to it today, he's watched how much everything has changed as a result of human encroachment and climate change. His writing details these observations and what it's like to have, as he says, modernity bumping up against his life. So here he is, Seth Kantner. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and, and future. future. My name is Cody Liska. And I'll be your host. Did you just finish with your book tour or are you still in the middle of it? Oh, what a crazy question. Um, <laughs> I was upriver spending every day looking for caribou. And then I went, uh, I want to say, 1st of October to Portland and Seattle. And it's just kind of almost like the whole idea of being self-employed. There's no parameters and so that mm -hmm. trip to portland sort of was my first um, uh, trip but before that i'd been um, putting stuff online and you know dealing with lots of um, um, mailing out copies to try to get a, uh, some media attention and and then i uh, sort of bumped into covid and um, the fact that my books uh, were lost on a container ship for eight weeks and um, so I came home from that first trip and then just sort of set up a whole nother three-week book tour which yes to answer your question I 
got back from a couple weeks ago. And what do you mean you bumped into COVID? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, certain, uh, yeah, certain uh, bookstores were not interested in uh, live events, uh, not just bookstores, but other venues. And, um, and so there was, you know, some potential for Zoom still, but it's pretty different than in the past where you go to a reading at Port Angeles or somewhere. And um, they had canceled pretty quick in there. And, and uh, I guess Eugene canceled because there were no books. And it was just sort of dismay. And it was very reminiscent of how Caribou operate. <laughs> Lots of confusion running back to the across the thin ice to shore. And yeah. Um, so anyway, I got back from this book tour, but then to, you know, um, uh, go back to that subject, then it, it doesn't really end because then I'm still sending out queries and trying to set up um, things for February and and um, and uh, trying to uh, get some media uh, east of Montana. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it sounds like not only are you self-employed, but you're also doing all the marketing for your book. Yeah, I'm not doing all of it. Mountaineers Books, my publisher is is doing stuff that's um, you know more or less invisible to me. Um, okay. I think what I'm doing is probably uh, more visible to them. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You write a book and you just want it to be done. In this case, it took nine years to write this book and about mm -hmm. thirty years to photograph it, and and you you're just nowhere even near done. It's just almost a new beginning because then if I don't um, do everything I can to get it out there, um, it just sort of disappears and, you know, presumably disappears anyway. But um, yeah, so there's a, I think the, the average person has a pretty blurry concept of what it means to write a book and then means when you're finished writing it and starting to try to self-promote it. You know, something that I read a while back and it was from Stephen King, I'm, I'm pretty sure. He said that you have your entire life to write your first book, but only about six months to a year to write your second book. But it sounds like with this book, and I know this isn't your second book, but it took you six years. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, this took about nine years. But um, yeah, oh, nine I think, years. yeah, same idea. I think that, um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm super slow. And second of all, I'm not remotely willing to give up uh, the rest of my life uh, hunting and harvesting and wander around the country and camping. And um, so Stephen King, I think, <laughs> falls into uh, what you call, um, you know, the high list or um, where, yeah, it's very important that he keeps almost like a boat staying up on plane. He has to keep his name out there and keep super popular so he can remain super popular. And and then I've had people tell me, oh, if I fall to mid-list, this is uh, people that are up at the top list, mm -hmm. then you just disappear and you can maybe never get back. And so the John Grishams and the Stephen Kings, I think, are, are staying up there at the top, and, and that's important. In my case, I'm the you know, bottom feeder and, and more interested in you know, fishing for salmon and, uh, and hanging out with caribou. So um, we're very different. <laughs> <laughs> So I know that you went to Anchorage, Homer, Juno, for your book tour. 
have you traveled or did you travel outside the state at all? Yeah, I spent a whole bunch of uh, uh, or uh, ten days or two weeks in uh, ten days, I guess, in Montana, um, going to five or six different locations, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was great to. Uh, we had a cold summer here in Kotzebue, so it was great to be in such warm weather in October, and and then uh, see old friends and see uh, old country. Um, yeah, certain locations were, you know, pretty poorly attended um, for various reasons. I guess uh, publicity, media, newspaper, radio is all sort of changing as far as this uh, book promotion stuff. And who knows what's replacing it? I guess Instagram and Facebook and stuff. But that's all pretty blurry, too. So it's been quite a uh, ironic flip-flop for me to come from, you know, up at the old sod house uh hanging out with my binoculars looking for caribou to, to down in portland wandering around the homeless shelters and wondering who reads anymore were you really down at the homeless shelters i was trying to find the bus or the train station and there's a lot of uh, i shouldn't say homeless shelters or just uh, homeless people trying to make a shelter <laughs> okay okay <laughs> yeah you know something that i think about right now with marketing and how things have changed so much from what it used to be is that it's kind of exciting because so many of us are kind of back on a, on a level playing field um, rather than having to, you know, go to those specific avenues like a marketing company and having them do all of your stuff. Now we have, um, social media, you know, to the point where we can do it ourselves. Do you, do you feel like that? Or is it, does it just seem like more work? That's very interesting, Cody. Um, I think the word we <laughs> that you used <laughs> okay, is all very nice for you, but I feel like, um, I spent a lot of energy learning to, uh, I'm dyslexic and I spent a lot of energy learning to read and write 50 years ago. And now um, I'm bumping into this digital world that I can't understand. And I, I, I like the uh, idea of what you said, level playing field. And, but I feel like I don't know how to use it. And, and um, I post something on Facebook and then people say, oh, you got to pace it. Uh, you know, got to do it a certain time. So the algorithm catches you or some, yeah. which is all nonsense to me. Um, and, you know, my only analogy might be if is if somebody came up here from Chicago and was wandering around on the ice and I was like yeah just look at the ice it's all kind of self-explanatory <laughs> <laughs> which is uh you know there's just so many different kinds of ice and yeah. some of it that you you look at you sure you're going to fall through you're not and so anyway long answer to that question um I like the idea of uh you know it putting it back uh, so we're on level playing field, but then I, I don't feel very level myself. And um, I have a, another joke I've been making lately where um, you know, I spent the first half a century of my life uh, wanting to be Inupac uh, uh, Eskimo, uh, you know, native, and uh, mm -hmm. finally gave up. And then and now I hear about this digital native, um, which apparently I can never be either because I'm too old and... Um, and lost on the computer. So um, I've been uh, gathering great humor from that. It kind of sounds like a little bit of uh, 
you're chasing something and maybe there's a little bit of imposter syndrome, like an element of that involved. Interesting. Um, uh, Desiree from Homer, who interviewed me, just sent me an email about imposter syndrome, and I, I need to reread it. But um, definitely, uh, yeah, you're, you're probably onto something. I, I've never felt like I'm a real writer and, um, and certainly don't, um, um, don't know much about that world in a lot of different ways. I just uh, write down what I, uh, what I care about and observe here, and, um, and then how that meshes with the rest of the world is... Mm-hmm. is um i guess it's curious and at the same time sometimes pretty dis, uh uh disillusioning <laughs> i just um i feel like the land and animals and protection and and understanding and just the value of hunting and open country is uh something i'm trying to talk about and then when uh people are more interested in you know an an, an app on their phone or something then i'm like mm-hmm. um wow what am i doing here I think it's really interesting that, you know, you just said that you don't feel like you're a writer. Um, And I wonder if that has anything to do with being from Alaska and, you know, you're up there in Kotzebue and you're focusing on caribou and you're focusing on like living off the land. And those things to me are, are very rooted in reality. Whereas, you know, sitting on your phone and being, like you said, digitally native, um, those are very, they're virtual. They're, they're not reality. I think you're, you're, uh, right on it. Uh, there, I, I've noticed this, um, my publisher asked me to start posting on Instagram, which I'd never done before. And, and, and Facebook, which I had a little, and um, each time I pick up my phone, I feel uh, completely cut off from my my natural feelings for life uh, and the outdoors and the cold and the wind and the and everything that feels like real R E A L to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, so yeah, I think I think you, you you hit it pretty square on. And um, and this fall was um, pretty choppy water as far as going from like I said, living upriver and then heading out into this world, which was not just cities and and uh, trying to promote the book, but also lots and lots and lots of time on the phone and computer, which um, feels like nowhere to me. Um, it feels addictive, but it also feels like nowhere and, and um, like you could use up 20 years of your life and not remember what you'd done. Yeah, 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 I... Uh... I keep thinking like there, there's a question I want to ask, but I can't like figure out what that question is. And I feel like it has, has to do with, you know, why don't you feel like you're a writer? Oh, <laughs> well, you, you hit it with the, uh, that, you know, I kind of lost track talking about, um, Instagram, but, um, yeah, I'm, uh, completely attached to the seasons and, and, food from the land and and so um we read a lot at night in our old sod house with no electricity and um and no neighbors um so words from books coming into us felt normal but then writing 
uh, you know, right now I'm living in a shack that's just constantly freezing cold. So I focused on the stove and, mm -hmm. and wood and wood and get wood. And, and to me, cold versus warm is uh, like something that's real. And then me uh, finding time or, or something to play with words um, uh, feels like what you do when you're done with your, your work and your life and your day. Mm-hmm. Um, but to say one more thing, um, you know, regardless of what people think, I, I make, you know, virtually no money at writing. And so I always feel like there's a lack of back pressure there. So in the summer, you know, I commercial fish for salmon and there's, there's pressure to catch salmon and make money. Um, and with writing, there's, there's no uh, connection there. There's no pressure saying, you know, write and money will come to you. Um, and so that's, that's a real thing, regardless of, you know, I never want to, uh, design my words for money, but I also, if there was sort of a correlation there, that would make it seem more like something. <laughs> and I think that there's something really important about not making money doing something that you love because it keeps you hungry and, the material or the product that you continually produce can remain genuine and authentic to, you know, the subjects that you're covering. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, I've noticed a <laughs> terrible correlation where you, you like, uh, photography and, uh, forcing yourself to, um, you know, deal with storms and follow a snowshoe after muskox for, hours and hours and it, there's some sort of love or, or enthusiasm that's driving you but but then if you try to sell photos uh and need to make money at it then boy it just becomes a a, a completely different thing and um mm -hmm. and so i'm not whining too loud about the uh, uh lack of money from writing i'm just sort of noticing that it is very good at putting it on the back burner when it's when it's not um, providing income. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thought that I had or the question that I was kind of struggling with myself to, to convey is that I think what it might be is that there are two different eras kind of at odds with, with each other at least in this conversation, is that you live a life that is very much a part of the land and self-sustaining. And I think that when someone like yourself, and my dad is, is very similar, he runs a surfing, hunting, and fishing charter outside of Seward. And um, he's very much like a part of the land as well. And when he encounters like digital stuff, or, you know, social media. He's just like, I, I don't get it. I don't understand what people are trying to do. It is, it's a totally different language. Well, that's definitely me. <laughs> I, I'd like to, I'd like to meet your dad because I feel like, um, I don't even know a person who's worse on computers and this stuff than me. Um, I also seem to have some magnetic ability to make computers turn to turn blue and stop working and and <laughs> you you did say you know the sound check took about a half an hour and you it was a long one and uh 
I didn't make any comments, but I seem to have a um, ability to to follow up electronics, which um, is uh, entirely possible that it's not even a joke. But yeah, so I've had endless uh, people say I've never seen a computer do this before. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd like to meet your dad because realistically, I think that is a um, uh, a true thing in our in our society now, and I also. Uh, think it's under observed and under uh rated that um there is uh, a giant change taking place and and it's important because um we need to care about the land and if we're busy looking at our little screens we're we don't even know the land um mm -hmm. and that's important and how long have you lived in Kotzebue? uh well i can't even really say i live here now <laughs> um I was born in six, 1965 along the Kobuk, and, and that's still home to me. It's about 150 miles east of here, and and I spend spring and fall there now. Uh, I come down here and commercial fish in the summer, um, and then winter would be my time to do more writing, and I usually spend um, part of the winter here. I've been going over to Hawaii for six or eight weeks to where my parents live to Mm -hmm. to see them and you know I was going to mention that my dad's uh 86 and he's uh he spends all his time outside working the farm and with his machete and and tools and stuff but um he seems to be better on computers than me he's uh, hunched over there pressing buttons to uh, get a <laughs> hold of uh whoever and um yeah. and listens listens to gurus from uh India on his laptop and so yeah, it makes me feel like I, I need to get with this uh, melding of, um, you know, love and relationship with the land and, and accept computers into my life. <laughs> <laughs> my grandpa, back when I was in college around, you know, 2008, my grandpa knows PCs really well. And I had a PC laptop at that point, And... I would reach out to him when something weird was going on with my my laptop and he would know exactly how to fix it. So um so I'm right there with you with, with that sentiment, but at the same time now I I'm I'm on the computer constantly. So so I'm a little different um than I was back then, but at the same time now I have a Mac. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Oh, interesting. So yeah, I, I mean I find it maddening that how uh, it sucks me in, and I'm so negative about it. I mean, I, oh, what am I? I'm going to go uh, across ice to get wood. Oh, I grab my phone to check the whether the wind's coming up, and and I put the the <laughs> phone back down, and then pick it up a <laughs> second later to tell my daughter I'm going to go get wood, and it just goes and goes and goes from there, and I yeah. drive myself crazy. But I I didn't completely answer your question. Um, so um, as far as you said, how long have I lived in Cotsbue? My family started coming down here uh, when I was nine, I think it was 1974, to commercial fish. And my dad had fished before that, I want to say in 1959 or so, here. But then there was an interval where they didn't commercial fish. And um, so we lived across at Sisolik in a tent for six weeks, uh, most summers, and, and commercial fish, and then we'd load our dogs and and stuff back in our homemade boat and start back up the river for home and then you know spend the rest of the year up there and and it wasn't until um 
uh, it wasn't until I was 30, and my wife at the time got a job here, that I started uh, spending more time on the coast, actually spending, you know, winters here. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty pretty neat country. Um, really, I find it really interesting to mix, uh, you know, part of my life uh, up where there's uh, more trees and, um, you know, up the Kobuk River and then part here on the coast where it's pretty... Uh, Pretty harsh environment, and it's, we're about to get a big storm here. It's uh, some of these storms are pretty scary, and and then um, pretty neat the concentrations of seals and herring, and uh, also caribou that can pour around the town here. It's it's uh, it's been great learning about the coast too. Can you describe what you mean by a scary storm? Oh well, that's pretty interesting because it's scary because we we have technology that we're trying to not have you know the the window blow out and mm-hmm. and 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 fill your house with snow and or your truck or whatever so technology protecting running water from um from nature is uh one of the things so when i was a kid we uh we hauled water from the river in buckets and and that's what i still do when i live up river and and so if you wake up in the morning and your bucket's frozen it's not that big of a deal um and there's that then on the coast here um there's no trees it's flat country or flat ice and um so if right now we've got a whole bunch of uh, powder snow because it's been super cold and no wind which is very rare and it's supposed to blow 60 tonight or tomorrow and and so suddenly you can hardly see you certainly can hardly see uh, the front of your truck if you're in your truck looking out the windshield um, but if you're crossing the ice on a snowmobile with a load of wood or something um, you know suddenly there's no visibility at all and you're uh, potentially you know getting your face packed with snow that's uh, moving 40 50 60 miles an hour and 20 below and so yeah it's just all around scary and um, in a lot of ways um, also I have to admit I think my dad and myself both uh, sort of design our lives so it's hard and you're, you are feeling nature as much as possible. And I just heard you say snowmobile. Do you say snowmobile or, or snow machine normally? Oh, crap. Um, when I'm on an <laughs> interview like this, I probably uh, beat around the bush trying to figure out what to say. Here, everybody says snow go. So when I, when I was a kid, and this is very important, um, in 1960s was when uh, the first snow travelers came. They were called snow travelers, and um, that demarcation between dogs and and uh, motorized travel in the winter was was huge as far as in, uh, affecting uh, uh, caribou and and hunting and fishing and people's relationship to the land, uh, aka protein <laughs> yeah um you know food for dogs um suddenly you know there was this need for for dollar bills to pay for snowmobiles and um so we called them snow travelers and then snow machines and then we went to now it's snow go that's what where's your snow go is uh yeah um what's uh the term here but um i'm always careful on interviews how much of your time is dedicated to subsistence living you know uh hunting for caribou and things like that um i'm pretty efficient 
Um, it's hard to answer that question partly because I've mixed photography with hunting. So um, I can be out um, a lot, you know, like all of September, I, I'm usually uh, looking for photographs. And then uh, generally, if there's enough caribou, I'm, I'm not interested in hunting more than one <laughs> for, for food until, until late September when they're um, getting ready to rut and it's important to gather, you know, four or five for the for the winter um so i it's hard to answer that question um also because like uh in the summer i commercial fish for salmon which means like seven weeks almost every day of of fishing and uh, a lot of those days i'm having salmon for dinner but then it's also making a living so yeah i um now um i don't know whether you call heating my shack i'm living in subsistence but i'm spending a ton of time um, gathering wood and um, and uh, I guess that's subsistence <laughs> <laughs> yeah living off the land yeah so um, um, yeah, uh, yeah a lot of the time and uh, when I go over to uh, Hawaii in December to uh, allegedly help my parents you know I'm I'm drying bananas and picking coffee and and all that so I'm really focused on food uh, kind of all through the year you know, this is definitely a side note, but hearing you talk about, you know, the way you live really reminds me of that book, Alaska's Wolfman. Have you read that? I haven't. My dad said he, he read it, um, but I haven't. I need to. Is that Frank Glazer? The author? Yeah. Or are you asking about the author or because it's Jim Reardon is the oh, author. Oh, oh, Jim Reardon. Oh, sure. Okay. No, I was thinking of that other book. No, I haven't read that one either. Um, I've really enjoyed, you know, Shadows on the Koyakon and some of uh, Jim Reardon's other writing. I'll take a, I'll take a look at that one. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's really interesting to see what Alaska looked like during that period of... I think it was like 1915 uh, to 1955. And Frank Glazer was the guy that the book's about. Oh, okay. So the I'm thinking of the same guy. It's just I think there's two books, one maybe written by Frank Glazer. But that's interesting. You know, I, um, I can't believe how spoiled Alaskans have become. There's so much money squirted on everything. And, and um, a lot of times I think we're just sort of a, a shadow of what we once were and um i i really enjoyed that uh shadows on the koyakon i was up river living by myself and i read it and he talked about snowshoeing after um seeing martin tracks and snowshoeing after martin well when i was a kid there were almost no martin here but with the uh, climate change suddenly there was you know 10 20 years later there was quite a lot of them and um so i went out after reading that, went out to get an armload of wood and there's fresh Martin tracks. So I grabbed my snowshoes and took off. And um, uh, a few hours later, I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly never caught up with the Martin. What other changes are you noticing that are a result of climate change? The simplest uh, thing to start with is just the the, the crazy amount of growth of uh, brush and dwarf birch and willows and alders and um, uh, 
-hmm. and then uh, sloughing ground permafrost and and then the the lakes just disappearing where the the lakes are uh, the thermal karst lakes have frozen uh, sides permafrost uh, sides and then when that melts it a lake that you've spent your your life uh, kayaking on portaging across hunting on is suddenly just gone it just drains and disappears and um, lots of willows grown on sandbars that we uh, they're no longer sandbars are turning into islands and um, just just this towering uh, vegetation that's intimidating and then um, especially fall uh, freeze up was something we counted on so much for the uh, ice to freeze in the river and the ocean and then we could set nets under the ice and travel on the ice and, mm-hmm. and especially fall you just never know whether you're going to get rain slop for um, for an extra month or more um, thin ice people drowning and animals um, you know falling through and all that's uh, hard to know where to start. It's so extreme. And then I think, uh, I mean, first of all, they say Northwest Alaska is sort of ground zero for climate change on Earth. And then I think um, uh, the fact that, you know, some of us are so focused on the land and gathering from the land and what the little cranberries and caribou and other things are doing at what season. And we're just more focused on it. So the excessive change mixed with that focus makes uh, uh, climate change uh, 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 it's a huge deal everywhere it's just we're more aware of it do you feel like you're you're ahead in that conversation i mean you said that they say that northwest alaska is ground zero for climate change on earth so when you get in conversations or you have conversations with other people that maybe you're not from Northwest Alaska, or maybe they're not even from Alaska. Do you feel like maybe you're from the future? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you say that. Because, um, I mean, you can uh, you can end up thinking um, you're uh, extra aware of things and then, and then feel like, oh, wait, am I just egotistical or something? But I guess I'm having more and more times lately where I, I feel like... Um, Wow, I might have a, a, a different viewpoint than other people. One one is um, that I um, I grew up really isolated from people, so so nature was you know my friend and and my uh, my daily uh, uh, experience. I didn't go to work. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> Not, none of my family got up and went to work or school or anywhere. We just uh, stayed home and lived off the land, and so um, I was always sort of between humans and nature and then also definitely between white and and native culture and and then now just here uh, sort of between caribou and <laughs> and uh modernity i guess and so yeah sometimes to answer your question i do have um feelings like oh maybe i just have a, a different vision a different viewpoint that makes this uh, uh valid to to say a few things um but back to climate change it's tough because i can um talk about uh rain and rainstorms in winter and how uh, terrifying that is here for the for the humans and the animals and the plants and stuff but uh you know you you tell somebody that in 
in Seattle and they're like, yeah, we get rainstorms in winter too. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and so you have to sort of explain, well, it's just, uh, it's like having a snow a blizzard in uh, the Sahara, Sahara Desert. You know, you just don't have snowstorms there normally. It's a, it's a big deal. And, yeah. and so it's a, it's a slow process. When my novel Ordinary Wolves came out in 2004, I think it was, um, I started, you know, being sent to the states and talking about such and and it all felt uphill this like um people would ask me hey have you ever seen uh signs of climate change and i'd just be like where do you start i mean that's yeah that's about all we see that's about all we see um so yeah i i think you know it all boils down to answers and um that i i have less of um i i can't even believe that people are are discussing climate change anymore it's just it's way past time to stop discussing whether it's real yeah you know i wonder if you mentioned you know that growing up you were between white and native culture could you talk about that a little bit yeah so my parents were uh, from what we called the states, my dad uh, was from Toledo and and came up when he was seventeen to go to college and at College Alaska near Fairbanks, um, and my mom came later uh, because the university was uh, offering uh, lowered uh, tuition, lowered uh, rates for uh, college for women because they didn't have any and. And they met there and, and ended up coming north, um, building a small sod igloo, and I was born there. And, and so they were part of this sort of back-to-the-land movement that I feel was um, uh, focusing almost backwards, if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> um, but anyway, very interested in, in old ways of doing things, uh, the native ways of living and, and looking at the land. And... Um, but at the same time, we weren't in a village. We were just, uh, you know, like 25 miles down down river um, from the village of Ambler. So, mm -hmm. so I was raised with this um, lots of emphasis on um, uh, the land, but also the the old native ways of doing things. Um, but very much white, <laughs> um, and so somewhere along the line, I could go out to the states as we call it in the lower 48 and um and probably appear to somewhat be normal um in the sense like you're walking down the street and somebody thinks you know what a dorito is or you know the difference between uh, football and baseball which i didn't um but was that a normal thing that was a normal question oh well you're getting into <laughs> some crazy stuff. My mom got sick when I was 14 and we went to Florida for seven months and that was my public school experience. That was 1980. Okay. And no, I didn't know the difference between these different sports or which one had a stick and which one didn't. And, um, I didn't know who the Beatles were, which was, and I didn't know what gay meant. Uh, there's a lot of things that, um, were, um, beyond challenging as far as dealing with, uh, nasty children um in public school so yeah um that's just maybe a analogy of of um um my upbringing and how it fit in with the i don't 
I don't know why I use the word normal, but the, the so-called normal world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then, um, you know, in the village is, uh, there's no way I could ever pass as anything but visually white, you know, and so what you are on the surface is often how you're, you're treated in the world. You know, I read on your website that you were schooled at home and on the land. What does that mean? Um, well, uh, the universe, uh, sorry, the, uh, <laughs> the state of Alaska would send two boxes in the fall, which was uh, pencils and erasers and stuff. And then the other box was books. And my mom would uh, uh, clean off the caribou grease off the table at night after dinner and get out the books and so she taught us uh, pretty much from uh, first grade to 12th grade there at night um, in the in the sod house with a little kerosene lamp and so that was the home part um, I said at night because during the day we were out um, trapping and hunting and hauling wood and drying fish and whatever and um, so that was the mix of those two things. And it, without uh, my mom to uh, encourage um, uh, learning grammar and speaking in full sentences and, and all that, um, who knows uh, what I would have studied. I think my dad probably would have been pr more interested in teaching us how to sharpen chisels and um, make furniture or kayaks or whatever all he made out of wood. But... Um, it was my mom that was uh, did the uh, the, the all American schooling. <laughs> yeah, um, and I make a certain amount of fun of that. You know, I struggled horribly with um, algebra. I'm uh, I was amazingly good at math when it was only numbers, and then when it mixed letters and numbers, I guess my dyslexia reared its head. <laughs> or, Anyway, dyslexia made uh, algebra challenging, and, and that's sort of my example of something that I'm not sure why I ever uh, was taught or studied that. But, but somewhere in there, probably uh, other stuff like history and, and geography and, and just plain old writing turned out to be important. Mm -hmm. And how much did dyslexia figure into your everyday life, your schooling, things like that. Oh, that's funny. You know, back then, I think they just called it uh, being stupid. Um, and really? So, yeah, there was, I never heard about dyslexia until I want to say Tom Cruise had it 30 years later. I don't know what, what time period, but there was no talk about dyslexia when I was a kid. It was just my brother was incredibly smart and I wasn't. Were you called stupid? Well... That's a complex question. Certainly, um, I was, you know, that soaks into your cells. You're just aware that you just have an impossible time with uh, phonics and grammar. And, um, and, and the other day I signed a book and I wrote NOV for November and then I realized the N was upside down. Um, <laughs> and um, somebody just got a book with a November spell with upside down N. <laughs> um, and uh, the same thing. Collector's like, edition. Oh, crap. Um, geez, I have such a... I've got this story about trying to sign a book to a woman named Sue and I could not remember how to spell Sue. Um, 
and um, I decided it couldn't be SUE because that's what lawyers do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and then I often, anyway, that's off, off the topic. But yeah, when I was a kid, I um, had a terrible time with all that stuff and um, was slow to read. And, um, and then I couldn't read silently and then my family could. And so that was a hurdle to get so you could keep that in your head and not be cluttering up the tiny little igloo. <laughs> <laughs> was there a point in your life when you felt like you know, your dyslexia wasn't so different that you, that you started to feel, I guess, quote, normal, unquote. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, somebody gave me a book. I think it was my friend Allison Fairbanks sent me a book called um, The Dyslexic Advantage. And that was probably two or three years ago. And I think that was the first time I was able to think like, oh, wow, maybe this is my brain doesn't work in so-called uh, useful normal manner but works um, uh, in other ways uh, you just got to keep your eyes out for the uh, the ways that it works well and mm -hmm. I'd never thought that before I'd just seen it all as dyslexic disadvantage um, and after reading that book I I bought a copy for a, a friend here with a dyslexic kid and then just greatly wished that um, somebody would have handed it to me and my family about 45 years ago. Mm -hmm. Does your family see now that, that it wasn't a, a handicap? Um, yeah, maybe. I'm not real sure about that. I noticed with my dad that he's got, um, when I was probably about eight or younger, he, no, the first kayak he made was canvas covered. So maybe I was 10. He ordered this, uh, material that's called either vinyl or vinyl i don't know <laughs> and so my mom corrected him for the next 50 years but he's never been able to remember whether it's vinyl or vinyl and um i can't either and and we both you know are dangerous around your toothbrush because we can't remember which color was ours and um so there's this weird i mean we have the same thing where if it's a single choice my brain can hold on to it, but as soon as there's two things to choose from, they just it just flip flops forever. I can never um, get it to stop flip flopping, um, and you know that certainly goes back to writing, where I can just get stumped um, on a, a simple word that almost everybody I know would uh just write and 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 move on you know uh went <laughs> i always use the example of went went has to have an h went w-h-e-n-t um, <laughs> but then you stop and oh crap it doesn't look right um but um yeah so little it's just how life works you know a lot of things you might uh sail over and then small things you trip over
do you write by hand or do you write on a computer? Well, not to be too whiny, but back to complaining about my abilities. Um, I have a hard time with both. I never learned to type and, and my handwriting is, uh, so impossible that, uh, that's the, if I didn't have getting the stories down that this wall between me and the paper, I would have, you know, 50 books. Um, I, I just have a terrible time getting the stories out of my head and, and to the paper. As soon as my hand picks up the pencil, it's, there's a problem. Um, and so I do, to answer your question, I do both. Um, I think it's really important to make sure you use your hand sometimes because different stuff comes out. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's different. So, um, sometimes if I'm writing, uh, fiction and I'm not having much luck with the character, I'll, I'll stop fooling around on the laptop and, and try with the pen or pencil, which I, and then also the, the whole idea of free writing where you, you're not, you try to give yourself a break and not come up with something useful, but just experiment with what's flowing out of your brain into the, through the pen. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, 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 the result is I end up with uh, a lot of uh, mayhem and mixture and, and have to keep sifting and, and, and rewriting and, and delete and mostly deleting and, and then trying to come up with a story. And then it's all an incredibly slow process in my case. So um, back to the dyslexia, I have to, uh, fairly often I have to uh, just accept that I'm not like these other people that can sit down and just be zipping out the crazy words. Uh, uh, it's, just, it's just not me. And I, I think, you know, all the way back to the beginning of this interview, I think that um, sort of adds to why I, I never feel like I'm a real writer. Have you ever thought about using an audio recorder? I know that Rod Serling, who did The Twilight Zone back in the, the 60s, he used an audio recorder. Wow, I'm in, impressed. Um, uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I spent a certain amount of money on this thing called uh, Dragon Naturally Speaking. Um, and I found two things. Um, one was uh, I noticed when I start talking, it's like the stories evaporate out of my head. So something about that silence of me in my head um, was uh, impressive important to me and, and not necessarily to maybe uh, the person you speak of. Um, and then the other was at that point, the, um, the technology was sadly lacking. And I would say, you know, the fox ran up the hill and it would say the box paid its bill. Um, <laughs> and it was just, uh, uh, ooh, I almost said a bad word trying to <laughs> convey how horrible it was. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, Cody, I want to interrupt for a second. There was a uh, freight plane landing uh, in the last few seconds, and I don't know whether you heard that on the uh, recording or not. Yeah, that's okay. I, I actually, um, I like hearing that that stuff in podcasts. You know, it really gives a sense of the place. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Cotspews, you know, especially cold weather is so neat when uh, it's... Uh, 30 below or something the the runways right across the lagoon ice here from the from the porch and um so it just sounds like the atmosphere is getting ripped open i, I would like to record it 
you know, at, at any point in your childhood, um, and, and sorry, I didn't mean to switch subjects, but this is just, it's something that's, that's kind of been on the tip of my tongue, but at any point in your childhood, did you feel like you were being slighted because you weren't in a city, you weren't around these, um, I guess like Western cultural hubs? Um, the, the main thing that I remember is, um, um, uh, Inupac travelers that came by would all stop. Anybody that passed would stop, which is not the way it is now. And they would stop in and potentially stay the night in super small house, you know, like somebody staying the night in your bathroom with you. Um, and, um, we were just so excited if they had kids, which they almost never did. Um, you know, people had kids at home, but they weren't tra out, you know, in the country. And then, so anytime kids came, it was just, you know, such a huge deal. Other kids. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so that was always, uh, to an absence. Um, I was best friends with, um, my friend Alvin in the, uh, village of Ambler. And, and so when his family came with their two and then three kids, um, it was incredibly exciting. And, um, and then um, later, the the main feeling missing out started maybe more like 12, 14, 15, probably 15, 14, 15 years old, where um, uh, then you're just socially aware that you're just missing out on everything. And, you know, that includes um, potentially parties and girls and cars and basically music what everybody else everybody else is doing and you're not you're cutting fish to drive for the dogs yeah yeah did you realize at a certain age that that stuff is actually cooler oh i don't know yeah maybe yeah that only took about 30 years thank you um yeah I, that, 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 uh, seven months in Florida, I was, uh, you know, so excited to, uh, you know, enter that world and have friends and, and all that. And, you know, people were so mean to me and I had 0, 0.0 friends and, um, and it was just, you know, survival. And so it's just so disappointing to, you know, hope for that and then not be able to get it at all. Just sort of see it in other people around you. And then, um, and then when I went to college, I guess it was a tiny bit better, but to a certain extent, I was always sort of different and not fitting in and, and all that stuff. So all that was uh, out there, wished for, but at the same time, incredibly disappointing to never be able to get across that ch chasm. You know, you've mentioned a few times now how mean kids were to you. I mean, I guess I want to ask like why they were so mean, but kids can just be mean. I mean, looking back on it, are you able to make sense of any of it? Maybe that's the question. Um, well, I have a young adult novel sitting at Random House, sort of caught in purgatory about a, you know, an almost school shooting that was uh, based on my experience there in Florida. And I I wish they would have published it because it, uh, it, uh, you know, I, I had it uh, to them before the the school shooting in Florida took place, and um, yeah, I I 
I have spent tons of time uh, uh, exploring in my own mind and on paper the uh, bullying and and uh, and how that fits in with uh, our society and our uh, you know racism and caste system and mm-hmm. <laughs> class system and and all that. So I, I spend a huge amount of time uh, exploring that in my mind, and and people don't know that they think I'm only writing about caribou <laughs> uh, or or ice or whatever uh, or climate change um but um yeah now i lost track of your question but um yeah i um i'm uh you know just over five feet tall and so i'm always an absolute target for um for male members of society to pick on um and and you know uh, female too but the the you know the boys and then men in my life have uh have always been uh easy to pick me out for for a target and then um the other part of my life was in the villages i was you know often the only white boy and so then once again a pretty obvious target and why did you decide to write that that book, the children's book about the almost school shooting as a children's book rather than say a novel? Um, well, in this uh, field that I don't know much about writing, um, I guess it would fall kind of in between as a, as a young adult novel and, and children's book falls into two more categories of uh, chapter book or, or more illustrated book. But okay. as a young adult novel, it's sort of... Um, uh, halfway or two, th- probably two thirds the way up towards, uh, you know, uh, or three quarters of the way up towards novel. Um, so it's kind of a, uh, just a novel, and hopefully it falls also into the crossover, whatever that means. But crossover would refer to like you're hoping a lot of adults would read this, also. Um, but I don't always know these things until too late or care about them. I just wanted to write for kids in you know the high school range who were uh suffering and thought they were um totally alone in the world and nobody understood or had ever experienced what they had experienced and then also to say like while this is uh real and 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 terrible and no fun but there's also um a lot of years ahead where you can um if you survive you can have a different life I wonder if you, if you draw from your own personal experience. I I have nothing else to work with. Yeah, that's the only thing I draw from. <laughs> um, and then I tend to tell people that I have a, uh, you know, back to the not feeling like a real writer. The the thing I do have that that I I run all my writing through is first of all I don't want to waste anybody's time ever, and I feel very uh, guilty about. Um, wasting somebody else's time. I, I hardly ever visit because what if they wanted to, you know, do something else besides visit me? And so going back to <laughs> wasting time, I, I with my writing, I, I just don't want to waste anybody's time. And then um, I don't want anything that's not true because there's so much non-truth that there's plenty of that. And so I run that through the, the truth filter and then to check if something's true, I have to really ask myself a lot of questions because as a human, you can think something's true and still be 
pretty off mark. And so those are a couple of my filters in this endless rewriting process. And um, I guess the other thing is that I tend to care about what I'm writing about. So I spend uh, uh, endless amounts of more time messing with trying to make things as uh, clear and um, absolutely perfect for describing what I want to describe. Um, it all leads back to being incredibly slow, but at the same time, maybe the only thing I have uh, going besides, uh, you know, writing what I know and my own experiences. What you just said that you don't like to waste anybody's time with with your writing reminded me of Strunk and White's book, Elements of Style, where they say to omit unneeded words. I feel like that's always my go-to when I'm writing. Yeah, same here. I, uh, and I, I think back on, I, I think it was Mark Twain joking about go ahead and put, um, well, I never did learn the, the pieces of grammar, but go ahead and put, I want to say, adjectives in and then uh, shake them out before you're done <laughs> and so i picture this sort of like uh, him picking up the page and shaking it until all the varies and reallys and and uh whatever's uh shake out and um and um i uh i went to college i always said i was never never going to go to college and then went to uaf because i wanted a girlfriend and and did i totally didn't want a degree or any of that and I had to take classes and to stay in college, you got to take classes. And, um, and so I took whatever looked easy. And one of the things was creative writing, which I'd never heard of. And then I started writing stories and, and that's how that started. It was an accidental, um, I had never written stories before I was 18. Um, and, um, I dropped out to go back to trapping, but trapping was poor and, so I went back to school in Missoula uh, to study writing. And um, when I got there, the head of the creative writing department was almost instantly mean to me. I just walked in to use a copy machine. And, and so I walked back out and said, you know, I'm not taking that. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and walked across the campus and took journalism. Um, and so like uh, E.B. White and the, the whole concept of, uh, of writing clearly, journalists, uh, the journalism program there was um, uh, very strict about um, being clear and being concise and, uh, being, and being honest, which was really appealing to me. And, um, and uh, so I, I just got incredibly lucky as far as writing goes. I got incredibly lucky accidentally taking a class in Fairbanks and and being accepted by the by the teacher and then and then taking journalism mm -hmm. not just taking journalism but the the teachers that I bumped into there were amazing and and then of course you know a terrible long process since then of fighting with words but it is a a process that's bearing fruit well um, yeah, that's interesting too. Everything to me is interesting because of my different viewpoint. But I run into people that talk about success and what success means, and boy, their definition is seldom um, the same as mine. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, success for me has usually been getting a fat caribou. And if it's skinny, you, you didn't get any success. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter how big the uh, antlers are. And, and so um, with writing, um, yeah, I have to remind myself, uh, you know, it doesn't pay the bills, but um, people write me letters and they, they uh, you know, I get people sending me stuff and, and writing me letters and, and saying what my words have uh, <clears throat> meant to them. And, and, and that feels like success. Off the top of your head, maybe without giving out any names, what or are there any letters that stick out to you? Um, one, um, I don't think it's a bad, uh, thing to say, but, um, uh, a woman from Minnesota wrote to me and, and, and she's, uh, uh, part, uh, Native American. And, um, and she wrote me this letter and said, uh, this was in 2004 or five when Ordinary Wolves came out and she's, um, really admired my writing in my book and said, uh, you make, uh, uh, a lot of natives look like white bread. <laughs> and, um, it turns out, you know, her, uh, one of her family members is a, is a well-known writer too. And, um, and, um, anyway, I, I laughed at that and I found it to be, uh, uh, a strange compliment after, uh, years of getting called other names. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, I think what she was saying was, you know, this this world that you know and describe is is uh, basically very close to the land and, and incredible amounts of, uh, I don't know, native ways and viewpoints and understanding. And, and, um, and I think she was maybe referring to a certain amount of, uh, I'm extrapolating, or I'm, I'm guessing here, but uh, uh, referring to a, a certain amount of people that, uh talk a lot about being one thing and are sort of you know part part of the pop part, part of the popular culture and not really connected to the land or connected to this uh native group or whatever um mm -hmm. i'm kind of beating around the bush there because it's so easy to say the wrong things nowadays and uh <laughs> um and and not uh, and not intend to but just uh yeah say the wrong things but yeah i think i'll i'll just stop beating around the bush i i think i think what she was saying was that you know i might be a white guy but i'm uh in a lot of ways more native than a lot of natives and um and and I hear that here too. I, I usually shy away from from saying it or acknowledging that because it's it's a touchy subject. But um, I don't know. We're all mixing together now. I think if we can learn from each other, it's always a good thing. Yeah, you know. And and I read that you were or are an igloo builder. <laughs> what what does that mean? Oh, who knows? Um. <laughs> um you know the the, the old uh, igloo is such a charged word. You know when when we used to go to the states, people always thought of it as a snow igloo, and and basically if you go far enough north, there's not really very many building materials, and so people did make their homes out of snow. And then if you're up here on the northern coast, maybe there's uh, there's whale bones and drift logs to make a structure, and then heap moss and dirt on it for surviving the winter and and then if you move down here where I was born and raised, um, people had access to 
uh, spruce and birch poles and logs and and it's still the same thing igloo being um, uh, this structure that's sort of posts and poles all lean together and then put dirt and moss over it and crawl in um, we had a tunnel we had a tunnel back then and and so um, here on the coast uh, I think it was the Park Service asked me to build a couple uh, for tourist items here and you know I'd certainly uh, grown up uh, doing that with my dad uh, and brother and family and, and mom there uh, cutting moss and cutting poles and adding on to the, the old place there and so um, yeah, I built a, a couple down here on the coast, which I think have since been bulldozed away, and, and that was that. But, um, yeah, very simple uh, structure to, to get out of the weather. And I'll say one or two more things, just because I'm now living in a plywood shack that's cold as heck. Uh, that um, the igloo construction is great. You're, um, you're, you're down in the ground, and, and the ground never gets very cold. I mean, it's frozen, but... Um, Mm -hmm. it's uh if i go up any time of winter up to my sod house on the kobuk and and shovel down and open the door i've got a you know homemade uh, plywood and caribou skin door there and open it and and go in it's about 23 above in there um and if i had a plywood house built right beside it um it would be whatever temperature it was outside you know 38 below in the house um mm -hmm. and so and then the opposite in the summer, if I go up there and uh, and go in in June and it's 90 degrees in the middle of June and you're cooking outside, inside it's going to be about 48 above. Um, and so the, the land is, uh, um, is uh, softening the harshness of the outside temperature. And then and then winter, we just because your, your structure is built in the ground and covered with moss, it's... Uh, it just gets covered with snow too and so that uh, is like styrofoam and um so it's a great way to live unless you don't like tons of mice and mold uh. <laughs> yeah you know i i realized that i skipped a question earlier about your book tour that i wanted to ask you about um on one of your stops you had the opportunity to spend some time with musician Martha Scanlon. What was that like? Oh, that's interesting. So um, I don't, uh, I didn't know Martha, and I um, um, had a friend send me some tapes that I've listened to the same two tapes over and over and over up at my sod house there with a you know twelve volt battery hooked up to a solar panel and um, and um, I just love her her words and 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 uh, music and voice, especially her voice. Um, and so, she, <laughs> probably thirty people showed up in Missoula at this uh, at this um, reading of mine. And afterwards, this uh, lady came up and said her name was Martha. And I said, "Yeah, my name's Seth." And we both had masks on. And um, and I I can't recognize faces. I have face recognition blindness and can't even recognize. Uh, people I've known my whole life and uh and I, I certainly had no idea what she looked like but anyway so she said her last name and I was just beside myself with uh, uh honor I don't know if honor is the right word but just just so amazed that 
Martha Scanlon came to my stinky little reading. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, the next evening I went out and uh, uh, we hung out, out around a uh, campfire at, at her place there and um, mm -hmm. and uh, talked and um, yeah, it was really interesting uh, many ways. One is just the whole idea of um, this struggle as a, a self-employed people trying to uh, navigate the changes in in um, uh, you know how you sell music or how you sell books or who 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 pays for them who reads them and then social media and it was um, and and then she complimented me greatly on um, just my ability to make uh, climate change real in my uh, talks about it and and so yeah it was uh, interesting I guess the only sad thing that remains with me is that. Uh, I didn't realize she had uh, quite the same struggles I do to to deal with, uh, you know, making a living with this, uh, you know, self-employed attempts. And um, you can get it in your mind, which I I know people have it in their mind that you know I make uh, millions of dollars on these books and um, and uh, and just all this uh, hypothetical glamour that's all not real you know last week that um filson uh menswear came out with some pictures of me modeling their clothing well i was uh guiding them out in the snow and storms here last march and and they took pictures but you know they're certainly not paying me a penny for that and so you can end up with one more uh you know image of uh hypothetical glamour that's uh pretty unglamorous from this end <laughs> um, and so to me that was just microscopically sad in a way that I I guess I with Martha's abilities and her voice I just hadn't thought that she was sort of uh, thrashing around in the same willows I am mm -hmm. you know it's an interesting concept success because it's one of those things that you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And what does it look like when you do get it or if you get it? And, you know, just thinking about it hypothetically, if you got it in, say, the same way that Stephen King has it and maybe you can't hunt caribou anymore because you're stuck doing book tours for the rest of your life. It's that's <laughs> so interesting that um, uh, I always go back to my dad being very suspicious of uh, things that cost money. Well, he was suspicious because he didn't want to uh, have a job, and he was always uh, uh, he's never had a steady job in my life, and is just religiously and morally opposed to the concept. And I, I joke about that in the book uh, where you know he warned us about thin ice and the dangers of. Of water in the winter and freezing and moose and bears but you know right up there on that list was uh was a st the dangers of having a job <laughs> um and that goes back to um you know uh, uh you spend money you got to go out there and make it and um um but the but success i i'm always glad that i'm carefully suspicious of of so-called success because i think it can just lead you straight away from uh, happiness or what you like to do or, or what's imp what's actually important and um, and so yeah back to the you know struggling with being self-employed and and making a living at it is um, um, yeah I'm 
I'm very aware of that, that um, whatever John Grisham gets for his, uh, you know, million copies of this or that, uh, I'm not at all sure I have any interest in most of it. <laughs> um, and this summer, uh, in this last year or so, uh, well, all these years, I guess, but living in, in little shacks and and cold and, and you know arduous situations um I, I just feel like wow there's just so much to learn here and and one of the things i've thought about um this last summer and, and fall and winter is um i kind of stopped washing out ziploc bags um <laughs> here i don't i don't have running water and i i, I didn't have a way of uh, uh doing anything very easily and and mm -hmm. I, I stopped, uh, my beer cans are going in the trash and um, little things that, you know, society is saying, hey, we want us all to uh, recycle or, or save resources. And, and it's, it's just hard when your life is hard. And so mm -hmm. if you're living in a, in a you know, 10,000 square foot mansion, uh, heating half of the, you know, block with your giant structure, and you're you have plenty of time to recycle your beer cans yeah <laughs> well good for you but um you know some of the the harder uh situations i've experienced i think well it goes back to our society not understanding the importance of hardship and and how you learn from hardship and and then also how it affects your life and um and so I'm I'm getting circuitous in this uh, in this uh, paragraph here, but um, yeah, I, I just think that the uh, success is a is a pretty blurry uh, statement, and then um, and then you know desire is uh, uh, it's almost better to not want than to you know get caught up in the wrong want. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to let you know that occasionally. I'll ask guests on the podcast who they think I should interview. And a number of times people have suggested that I interview you. What I think is great in addition to that is that every time it's been out of reverence for your writing. So Don Reardon suggested I reach out to you. Um, and when he, he said to reach out to you, he was like, um, you know, Cody, you, you like good writers. You need to talk to Seth Kanner. <laughs> Don's so crazy. Don has done, I don't know why he doesn't become a, uh, just become my publicist. He's done so much for me and he never stops. And I don't even understand how he has time to write. He's so busy helping me. And that's just with the writing, you know, then I call him three or four times a week to ask him how to turn my computer on or or all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, I, uh, I don't even know where to start repaying Don for everything he does for me on a hourly basis. Roman Dial also suggested it, suggested that I reach out to you. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've been wanting to know what uh, Roman dealt with with his book in, in many ways, but the, um, he's sort of caught in my brain as a person who bumped directly up against COVID. He sent me his book, and I, I blurbed it for him, which I, I don't do too often. I have to uh, feel something for writing. I, I, I feel bad, but a lot of people expect me to blurb their book, and it might be a, a, a genre that is not something I read or it doesn't touch me. And I, I did his book, and then 
and then along came COVID, and I never did find out um, how all that worked. I was envious because he had a, it looked like a big, big house, big publisher, and and anyway, I never got back to him. But yeah, so the um, I think this drags me over into the subject of what writing has done for me. And before Ordinary Wolves came out, I, you know, in most ways, I was nobody. I was no, wasn't really white or native or never played basketball or gone to the same public school somebody went to or wasn't part of a community had never been and and so the writing community um has been you know my first and and you know in some ways only community of uh the way writers help each other and was was amazing to me i should say even before my books came out it's just amazing to me the way writers helped each other and not to pick too much on photographers but <laughs> i felt like the photographers were were more competitive and so you know if your picture of a caribou having sex with a bear was used then maybe so-and-so's <laughs> would wouldn't be and um and um but writing it wasn't that way it was more like um uh writing the space for all of us in the sense that we're, we're so different it's not like a photograph but yeah so i've been um lucky and amazed and then the other thing is is not even just the community of the writers but the most of the people i've met uh in the last you know second half of my life is be because of uh traveling for writing um actual writing or, or people getting a hold of me and and so I think that's the part, uh, thank you very much for reminding me actually, um, that's the part I need to uh, focus on uh, as far as back pressure to make me write more and, and, uh, and feeling success in my tiny little heart, um, <laughs> unappreciative heart. <laughs> um, yeah, it's easy to, I, I find it easy to get sort of uh, negative about writing and ah, why am I wasting my time? And, um, and I think this fall was probably the uh, one of the pinnacles of that when I left um, uh, my place upriver um, like a, four days before the flood of caribou finally came. So I'd spent all that time with zero caribou searching the, the land for, for animals and then left to go to the States to go talk about caribou and then miss them and then got to the States where my books were lost on a barge um, because of basically what I'm writing about is, you know, this complicated world mm -hmm. <laughs> that, or avoiding the complicated world. Um, so it just <laughs> felt like I was caught in these um, choppy waters of uh, confusion and, you know, modernity bumping up against my life and me trying to write about the, the old life and then mm -hmm. being off on book tour for it. It's just a big mess. And, um, and I was like, why the heck am I doing this? I should, um, I should stop. In my experience, a true Alaskan writer is someone whose writing genuinely represents Alaska. It's in how they describe the land and the ocean and in the words they choose. When you sit down to write, is that something you actively consider or is it something that just comes naturally to you? Oh, no, I uh, actively consider it. Um, okay. I, um, I, I, I very stress, put lots of stress on myself where it's, um, I need to describe the, the pastel 
orange dawn and the dark darkness and the wind and um yeah i i put a lot of stress on myself and and uh <laughs> goes back to being a kid where um uh people now are always asking me you know which alaskan writer influenced you and all this and i'm like oh my gosh we just the last thing me and my brother wanted to read about was alaska <laughs> um please don't make us read it and then uh the tundra whatever just we had plenty of nature and plenty of tundra we did not want to read about that crap um and then uh the other side of that was just that it never felt real the uh, people writing about Alaska, it seemed like a lot of exaggerations and um, and uh, noble this and glamorous that. And, mm -hmm. and um, I would say that was a, a huge percentage of uh, why I wrote um, at all was to want, uh, wanting it to wanting somebody to write it the way it was um, with the, the messiness and the and the irreverence and the and the beauty all mixed together and um mm -hmm. and i didn't like the leaving that out um the other thing uh definitely back to uh some of our previous uh, uh conversations here um in the last half an hour is um i was cut off from people and and uh as far as connecting with people so my attempt to connect with people was you know me writing ordinary wolves um uh, I didn't have any other way to say, you know, this is how I feel, this is how I see the world, other than to write that book. Um, and it's almost like by writing that book, I succeeded in uh, connecting with people, <laughs> and then it makes it less... I was only going to write one book. My publisher or somebody, my, one of those, maybe my agent said, okay, so you've broken trail for being a writer, now you need to quickly write another book. And I was like, <laughs> I was only going to write one. I never wanted to write more than one. And it was uh, very disappointing to hear that anybody wanted me to write another one. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it's very important to me to um, describe uh, this country and land and animals and and people uh, as closely as I can to accurate and, and clear. And I like that. I don't have a word for it, but I like when your description is just so true that you can feel it and be there. And, mm -hmm. and you, it's almost like you're not reading. You're just there. Yeah, I feel like good writers are masters of observation. They're able to retell what they observe in a way that helps readers better understand themselves and the world they live in. If you were to insert yourself into that concept that your writing is helping people understand something, what do you think that something is? Hmm, interesting. Um, I, I really uh, hope I can go back to this young adult novel because um, something in there I'm trying to say, and I don't quite know what, it has to do with self-respect and that's been very blurry for me and um uh self-respect you know i say that and i think uh, e egotism or or you're selfish or you're not supposed to think of yourself and um all these questions and and unsureness about that and so i guess um there's probably a correlation there in everything i'm trying to do which is uh, you know, your sense of place, your relationship to what's around you, and then 
this crazy uh, uncertainty of your relationship with yourself and and um, you know more and more that's my complaint about the iPhone is I I don't even notice myself I'm too busy playing with my phone <laughs> um, but um, I think all that is um, I spend uh, lots of time alone lots of time up river at the uh, you know what we've come to call Kapakavak which means um, you know place where you spear salmon but it's it's you know it's a sandbar three or four hundred yards from where we we build our sod igloo and but um i spend lots of time up there where there's there is just no uh there are no people around not like being in my shack here alone but you're just totally alone and um and so i have tons of time to for my mind to think about these things and and um you know i want to write about uh suicide and alcoholism and 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 caribou and and um, bullying and all these things, but I th I think they kind of go back to that that same subject of you know where we fit in with uh, our surroundings. Mm -hmm. You know, Seth, that does it for my questions. I wanted to let you know that I really appreciate your time. Um, this has been great. Roman Dial and Don Reardon were a hundred percent correct in knowing that I would love to talk to you, that I would love to talk to you. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, no, this is very interesting, uh, your ability to make me talk about this stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, no, I mean, there's always more and um, and all that, you know, talking about food is, you know, if you ever want to do a <laughs> podcast on food, that's a, kind of my connection to, to the world. Um, and I think it's going to become our everybody's connection pretty quick here when things get a little harder. Um, but no, this is good. Um, great talking to you, and um, and uh, hope to meet you one of these days. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit AnchorageMuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. 